0: Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 31. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. For in him, we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring.
1: Well, welcome, everybody. My name is Johnny Morrison. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, it is good to have you. Um, I've said this a few weeks in a row, but if you are new and you're watching online or you're here and you want to get more connected to the things that are going on at not or you're not 100% comfortable like having a one-on-one conversation with somebody yet because of COVID or just because you're shy, uh, which is, would be the thing that I would do, is just not talk to anybody for like a month. Then you can go online to slash connect and you can fill out some information about like the that you would want to get connected, whether that's a or whether or not my microphone is working. Probably a user. So if you want to get connected to something that's going on, that would be the way to do it. Cool. Let's, uh, Pray one more time, and then we will jump into our series and the book of Acts. God, thank you that you're with us. I don't know where your people are today, like where they're coming from emotionally or spiritually or physically, whether they're tired or rejoicing or whether they feel fulfilled or whether they feel empty or whether they feel sad or frustrated or angry or content. God, I don't know where each person is, but I know that you meet us exactly where we are. And that you pay attention to what's happening in our hearts and our minds and our individual lives, and you speak words of intimacy to us, and words that invite us into the way of you and the story of you from where we are. So God, today, may we hear your invitation anew. May it press into our heart in deep and real and tangible ways. would it call us into the life of you? In your name we pray. Amen. All right, we are in our second to last week of a series entitled The Missio Day. And Missio Day, it's a theological concept that means the mission of God. And what it means very simply though it's not necessarily simple, is that we believe God is on mission. That God is doing something in the world around us. That there is some new reality that's coming into being because God is bringing it into such. That there is a fermenting or percolating on the margins of this world where God is bringing his universe into bear. We believe that God is on mission ahead of us, before us, around us, even in us. And so the question that we've been asking is like, okay, so if God is on mission, if God is before us, if God is ahead of us, what does it mean for us to be the people of this missional God? What does it mean to join God's mission in the world around us? What does it mean to be the church? Not just abstractly or ethereally, but what does it mean to be the church, the Missio day in Salt Lake City? What does it mean to be us here and now? and we've made some kind of like big statements about how God is working and how God is moving and what it looks like to join God, we've said that we believe that God is fundamentally changing the world through the restoration of God's presence. That the way God moves, the way God changes the world, the way that God brings about something new is God is present. And God gifts his presence to a people called the church who are then invited to be present to the world. God gives His presence to the church through the Spirit, and we are then invited to be present to the world. And then we do this, we join this presence. we practice presence through a series of practices that we've been exploring over the last couple of weeks. Practices are just one name for, you could call it liturgies, spiritual disciplines, different words that kind of evoke the same idea. But what they are fundamentally is ways for us to tend to the God's presence in us, God's presence around us, and to sort of merge those two spaces together. Now that sounds abstract, but very simply, tending to God's presence in us and around us happens when we have dinner with friends in our home or in their home. we practice listening to them and attuning to them. And out of that conversation begins to emerge new discoveries about what's happening in their life where God begins to speak and heal and bring renewal. That's a practice of presence. And a practice of presence is when we recognize that God has made us in certain ways and wired us in certain ways and gifted us with certain abilities and we join together with our community to make something in the world around us from art to families to businesses to gardens to omelets that we share with our friends because it witnesses to the thing that God is doing. That's a practice of presence. Today, we're going to look at our final practice of the series. We've done five altogether. Five big practices that are representative of lots of other kinds of liturgies or spiritual disciplines. But this final practice is this. The practice of invitation or of inviting. The practice of inviting. And we're going to define the practice of inviting this way. The practice of inviting is the practice of making present, and accessible God's offering of a new kingdom to the world around us. What are you here for if it's not ethereal definitions of spiritual concepts? (laughs) Now, there's a lot of ways we do this that I think will maybe make this feel more practical and accessible. We practice inviting when we tell our story of God's work in our life to those around us. That's a practice of inviting, to tell the story of God's work in us to those around us. We practice inviting when we, through words or art or our work, name the deficiencies of the world around us. When we name what is wrong and unjust and broken and sinful and evil, I think we're practicing inviting. And we practice inviting when we defiantly proclaim that God's kingdom is different than the kingdoms of the world. Maybe the most common way to think about the practice of inviting is through evangelism. Now I know that the phrase evangelism or the word evangelism for many of us has a lot of like baggage. Some good. Can baggage be good? It has things that are good, things that are heavy, things that are worn out, like a lot of history and memories that come to it. But evangelism very simply is about the proclamation of good news. You probably have heard this illustration before, but evangelism before it became like a fundamentally religious word meant to declare news that was so big everyone needed to hear it. And so like if a war was won and a war was over, someone would be sent into a city to declare the evangelion, the good news that the war was over, the war was won, peace was established. And an evangelist was like a newsboy or like an anchorman. It was like somebody who ran into a city and was like, do you know what's happening? Here is the news that is being declared. The news is over. The king is returning. Hope is alive. Evangelism is about making present something. That's what news does, right? It's we hear about something before the, maybe the reality has actually merged into our city. So maybe the war is won, but we don't see the soldiers returning. And so an evangelist would come and say, hey, the war is over. And they make present to us this reality that is yet to come. The practice of invitation is making present something that is on the verge, that is beginning to emerge. Jesus does this all throughout the stories of the gospel. When he arrives and begins to announce, hey, the kingdom is near. The kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is in your midst. What Jesus is doing is he's announcing this news. He's making it present to the world around them that this thing is happening in your midst. And you may not notice it yet, and you may not see it yet, and you may not understand its full implications yet. But I am here to tell you that it is beginning to emerge in your midst to make it present and accessible, to begin to define the contours of something that is just beginning. See, inviting is about joining God in making His work and His offering present, knowable, and accessible. There's lots of uh, examples of this in the book of Acts. But in Acts chapter 17, which Rhea read to us, we get one of the most, like, famous and perfect illustrations of this practice. And throughout the story, we'll get to see, like, okay, what does it look like to be a people who practice inviting? And the story begins with Paul waiting in the city of Athens. And Paul's on this missionary journey. We've kind of looked at it a few different times throughout the series, that Paul is on a journey. He's taking the story of Jesus all throughout this, like, known world and he comes to athens and he begins to he's like waiting for his friends to arrive for them to finish the journey or continue the journey but while he's in athens he begins to explore and pay attention and see what's happening verse 16 says this while paul waited for them in athens he was deeply distressed to find that the city was flooded with idols he began to interact with the Jews and the Gentile God-worshippers in the synagogue, and he would address whoever happened to be in the marketplace each day. As Paul is in the city of Athens, he begins to pay attention, begins to explore what's happening around him. He goes to the market and then to the synagogue. He learns the stories and the questions and the arguments and the struggles and the hopes of the people around him. And as he's paying attention, he grows disturbed at what he finds. But at the same time, as he's growing disturbed, he also discovers what? God-worshippers already in the city. The practice of inviting is this first. It is first the practice of responding to God's invitation to join the Spirit's work that is already happening before we ever arrive. We've said this every single week, and I'm going to say it again, and hopefully I never stop saying it, that the whole premise of the church, not just this series, the whole premise of the church, the whole premise of our life, is that God is way ahead of us. That I'm not manufacturing some spiritual event in a new city, that I'm not trying to rescue people out of nowhere, but instead God is already moving, already percolating, already fermenting something that I'm having trouble describing and finding better words for, which is why I keep using those words, because God is already there. And Paul's job is just to join what God is doing. To see it, to pay attention to it, and to participate in the work that God has begun way before Paul gets there. We've seen this all throughout this series. When Peter is called to the Gentiles, He gets called to Cornelius, and Cornelius is referred to as a God worshiper who's already known for his faithfulness, who sees a vision about God before Peter is even called there. When Paul is called to Lydia, Lydia is in a prayer group waiting for something to happen, already worshiping God. Not to say it's always the way it works or it always plays out in that way, but there is a pattern in that God is always already ahead of us. That God is working and doing something and inviting us to pay attention, to explore, so that we might join the Spirit's work in that place. So we might join what God is doing. Not feel the weight of manufacturing or creating, but instead feel the humility and freedom of an invitation. So Paul explores. And he sees that God is doing something, and then Paul also sees and begins to learn that there is something the city is wrestling with. As Paul pays attention, he begins to understand the stories that are at work in this city, the questions that are at work in this city, the hopes that are at play in this city. He does not simply interject his own issues into the city or interpose his own beliefs into the city or interpose his own experiences and expectations. Onto the city. I think this is maybe a human thing to do. So, a thing that we all do. But we tend to think that the human experience, or maybe I should say, we tend to think that our experience is a universal experience. And the thing that I've done, and the thing that I've gone through, and the questions that I've had, and the wrestles that I've had, and the stories that I've had, and the things that I believe about myself, good and bad, are universally true of everyone around us. Like, they believe those things. I wrestle with abandonment. They wrestle with abandonment. I believe that I'm supposed to be the hero of the story. They believe they're supposed to be the hero of the story. This is the questions they have about God because those are the questions I have about God. But though some of the truths about being human are universal, the experience rarely is. Our story informs Our questions, our life experiences inform our questions. Our friendships and our histories and the culture that we come from inform the questions that we ask and the doubts we have and the struggles that we hold. And so the practice of inviting whatever it is first begins with exploring because it takes seriously the uniqueness of every person. It takes seriously that we have our own stories and experiences that we are bringing into this equation. It does not impose our own needs or our own questions or our own concerns on others. It does not try to make something into a template or a formula. Instead, it is about paying attention to what God is doing and what's happening in this moment. See, as Paul does pay attention, and as Paul does explore, and as Paul pays unique attention to the culture and the context and the moment that he is finding himself in, it begins to shape what happens next in the story. Paul is brought, after having this like series of of investigative conversations, he is brought to this place called Mars Hill. And here's what the text says in verse 22. It says, Paul stood up in the middle of the council on Mars Hill and said, People of Athens, I see that you are very religious in every way. The discovery that he's made. As I was walking through the town, exploring, I was carefully observing your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Let me tell you that what you worship is unknown. I proclaim to you, this is God, who made the world and everything in it, this God is Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples made with human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed something since he is the one who gives life, breath, and everything else. See, as Paul has walked the city, he's, he's explored the context and the place around him. He's like knowing what's happening, what questions are being asked. And he begins to discover that there are stories that permeate Athens. Stories that make sense of life in Athens. And this is true in all cultures, in all contexts, that there are stories that help us make sense of life. Stories that give life a sense of meaning or significance or purpose or direction. We all have these stories. They help us define the world and even ourselves within it. These stories ground us. They give us a sense of what is happening in this world. These stories shape what we believe about success or achievement or significance. These stories can shape what we say about ourselves, what we're here for, why we live, whether we're loved, whether we're known, whether we're seen, whether we're valuable, whether our story is this or that. And as Paul has walked the city and begin to have conversations and interactions, he begins to discover what those stories are. And when he's called to speak and to give an answer for what it is he's bringing, he doesn't offer a template or a formula or a series of steps that are kind of like irregardless to the moment. Instead, he speaks to their stories. And here's what's really fascinating. He doesn't argue with their stories. He doesn't even try to disprove their stories. Instead, primarily, he offers them a different story. He offers them a different story from the one that they have come to believe. He looks at the idols and he says that God that he worships is not made. He looks at the temple and says that the God he worships is too big for temples. He looks at the people, the questions, the doubts, the struggles— And he says, From one person, God created every human nation to live on the whole earth. Having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their land, God made the nation so they would seek him, perhaps even reach out to him and find him. In fact, God isn't far away from any of us. In God, we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets say, we are his offspring. Paul sees the stories that that Athens offers. He sees the emptiness that they engender, and he offers them instead God's big story in which every person listening has a home. So the practice of inviting, as it is a practice of exploring and responding to God's invitation to explore, the practice of inviting is also about being located in God's story. It's about finding the place where we belong and the place where those around us belong to what God is doing. We need this as the people of Jesus. This is not just some news for those who are like outside of the church. Inviting is also a practice that we desperately need here. Because all of us can so quickly be rewritten by rival stories. Rival narratives that define our lives by success or define our lives by work or define our lives as less significant than they are or define our lives as shameful or define our lives as abandoned or define our lives as scorned. We need to be reminded again and again that we have a place in God's story, that we are His offspring, that He has established our place, that He knows us. Very practically, that's why we gather on a Sunday. This is an invitational space. We gather at the table to be reoriented into God's story. I tell the story of God to reorient us and re-narrate so that we might have a place of God's story. We sing God's story so we might know where we belong. Invitations and inviting is about being located in God's story. That's true for us here every single week so that we might leave this place a people of God's story who live into the invitation of God's story, inviting those around us to join with. So we need this so desperately, not just simply because the stories around us can rewrite us and redefine us, but we need it because it's also what we were made for. This is what Paul goes on to say to this council in verse 27. He said, God made the nations so they would seek him, perhaps even reach out and find him. In fact, God isn't far from any of us. In God, we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets said, we are his offspring. Therefore, as God's offspring, we have no need to imagine that the divine being is like gold, silver, or stone, images made by human skill and thought at the bottom of everything, beneath the rival stories and the false gods, beneath the painful lies about ourselves, the lies of abandonment, the lies of shame, the lies of success, the lies of culture, even beneath the pain of our world, the horror, the violence, and the injustice that we witness is a truth that we were made for more. all the other stories of our world, right at the very bottom of it is a truth that we were made for so much more. And the practice of inviting reveals that and confirms it in us. The people of Athens were made for more than the small God and tiny stories that they were being offered, and so are we. And I feel like what Paul is saying in this moment is that at, the, at even our deepest level, even when we are not followers of Jesus, that there is something that resonates about that at our, at our most core moment. That's what Paul says. He's like, you are made to seek him, made to reach out and find him. God isn't far. Even your own poets acknowledge it. The writer of Ecclesiastes says this like really similar way of saying it. In, verse, in chapter 3, verse 11, he says, God made everything beautiful in its time, and he also set eternity into the human heart. There's this, like, sense, this idea, this resonance, this reality that is at the very bottom of us. And the practice of inviting tells us we belong to a different story, and then I think it resonates with our deepest making— We are made in the image of God, and no matter what we do, we cannot totally destroy what God has done. There's a theologian I really like named Stanley Howard Wasson, and he says that God created the universe, which means that there is a natural grain to it. And we love to run against that grain. We love to cut against the grain. We love to move against the grain. And, and our moving against the grain is what creates the friction of this reality. We deny the story of God, we move against the grain. We abandon one another, we move against the grain. We don't follow his word, we move against the grain. And it creates friction. But the grain is still there, at the very bottom of everything. There's still God's intentions, like at the bottom of how this thing is supposed to run and even how you and I are supposed to be. And the practice of inviting is about acknowledging that that grain is still there. I think about it simply as saying, like, as followers of Jesus, the practice of inviting is like pointing to the grain of the universe and saying, see? The practice of inviting is looking at pain and saying, this is not how it's supposed to be. The practice of inviting is pointing the beauty in saying, yes, this is closer to what God intended. And when we do, when we point to this grain and say yes, or when we point to those things that run against the grain and say, no, something within us resonates. We are God's offspring. We have no need to imagine because at some deep level within us, it rings true. And when we invite, we speak to that deep grain, that deep resonance. Because we were made for more. And finally, the practice of inviting Is about the offer of a whole new way of life. Because these things are true, because inviting is these things, it's paying attention, it's narrating a new story, it's speaking to who we were actually built to be, it then finally offers a whole new way of existence, a new way of being, a new way of life. So Paul says in verse 30, he says, God overlooks the ignorance of these things, and time is past, but now, directs everyone everywhere to change their hearts and their lives. Sometimes I think uh, sharing our faith or evangelism inviting can become really focused on the transition or the the translation of truth claims to other people. Because I want you to believe a set of things I want you to affirm a set of truths. I want you to look at like a, a list of facts and affirm those things. And that's my primary job when I'm talking to you about the story of Jesus. In my uh, like earlier in my like I guess like I'd been a follower of Jesus for a while. I just just gotten into ministry. I was doing like an internship. This was hundred percent the way that I operated. I was like, I think I was in Bible college, so I was like, I just knew everything at that moment. And I was reading tons of books on like skepticism and questions, and I would sit at coffee shops for hours, because I was like, what else are you going to do? And have conversations with people about Jesus until there was nothing left to talk about. They'd have no questions left. I would argue them into total silence. And that was consistent. That would happen all the time that we'd have these conversations, and they would get to a place where they'd be like, honestly, I have no more questions. Honestly, I think it might be, there's good reason to be a follower of Jesus. But I don't know that in any of my moments with those folks of arguing, that someone out of those arguments was like, you know, I want to be a follower of Jesus. Lots of other moments where that's emerged, but in those arguments, I've never seen it in my own like, place with them emerge into that conversation. And that's because faith is more than ideas. And we, like Sandy acknowledged in the Missio voice, are more than heads. Faith is more than ideas, and we are more than heads. We believe that Jesus is bringing renewal to all the world. We believe that Jesus is bringing a kingdom. Not a set of ideas, not just a bunch of truth claims, though that's a piece of it. But he's bringing a whole kingdom, a whole world order, healing to every piece of it. I think that's why Paul says hearts and lives. Hearts is the symbol for what we love, and lives are the symbol for your life. Everything. So invitation has to speak to everything. It calls all of us, every part of us, our bodies, our minds, our hearts, our community, our money, everything into this way of Jesus. Yes, it's about truth claims. Yes but it's also about that deep resonance within us. It's also about finding ourselves in the story that we were made for. It's about our hearts and our lives and the fullness of what it means to be human. I think that's why the primary symbol that we inherit from our Christian tradition about invitation is baptism. It's a full immersion into something. This whole way of life is ending and a new one is beginning. It's a symbol that it is full bodied totally encompassing nothing is untouched or unchanged by the invitation of Jesus so missio what would it look like if we became an invitational people if we begin to practice inviting, not just out in the world, but in all of the spaces in which we live. There's an image that we've been using. We haven't shown it in a while, but we use it at the beginning of the series a few different times to show just like, where do we live as the church? Sundays are like second space, like house churches, and then everywhere else. And invitation exists in all of those spaces. And we need it to exist in all of those spaces because if we practice it in all of those spaces, and I think the first thing that happens is we become more grounded. We become more grounded. Our identity becomes more grounded. Our sense of self, our sense of other, our sense of who God is, our sense of what it looks like to live in this world becomes grounded. We need to be constantly re-invited to find our location in God's story. And as that happens and as we practice invitation, I think the other thing that can be possible is that we would have a better sense of what it looks like to tell this story to the world around us in ways that speak to its deep resonance and its deep needs, a way that actually challenge the rival narratives of the world. And maybe most importantly, I think what is possible is that we would offer the world a story to belong in, a story to call home. So, Missio, as we close up and continue to worship I want to extend that invitation to you the one that always exists in this first space that exists in all spaces but comes to us an invitation to find ourselves within God's story the place that we practice the most like we've already said is God's table where we're invited to sit and feast and know ourselves as belonging to the community of Christ. And so I know that we don't get to like gather at the table in the same way, but you have these little cups near you. And in a moment I'm going to pray and I'm going to invite you to take communion. And as you do, receive it as God's invitation to you. Invitation into relationship. An invitation into God's story. An invitation into the community. An invitation to a new story about who you are and what you were made for. Let's see, let's pray. God, thank you today that you invite us into something more. The thing that we were made for, the thing that our heart longs for, I think at the very deepest, at the very bottom of everything, the truth that we are so desperately looking for. That what hurts is not right. So God, today as we hear that invitation again, would we respond again and find ourselves located deeper in your story so that we might leave this place in invitational people, paying attention and offering what resonates so deeply because it's who you are. God, we pray these things in your name. Amen.